I'm Tom Henley, and this is Saga. Today's story is a success story that has not yet ended. It is a story about asking why and why not. Today's story starts at the end of the 60s. It was a time in Sweden when things were changing fast. We're going to change society, everything we believe. You know, this was a time in history when what I remember from the late 60s and 70s is this was an epoch when people thought we could change everything. It, we really did. It's, it's, a very, it's very difficult, different today, I'm sorry to say. That's Birgitta Bolinder, and let's kick off the episode with her. I'm Birgitta Bolinder, and I was one of the eight women who started Group Botta in 1968. Uh, I was a teacher at the time, um, and... Um, I had a colleague who introduced me to another woman uh, called Birgitta Swanberg. I didn't know her. She said, you, you, must, you, you two will like each other very much. So we met and she said, you must come to these seminars on uh, sex roles in literature in Uppsala. And I hadn't really heard of them, but she told me there was a woman who was... Uh, a teacher at the university, and she had this seminar. So we, I went with Birgitta Svanberg and met some other people, and they were all literature scholars, which I wasn't, but I just listened. Their talks were the best things I'd heard in my life. Uh, so I had a great time. Most of the times, we, from Stockholm, uh, went by train to Uppsala and then late, very late. And sometimes somebody had a car and we all tried to squeeze in. They were usually very small cars. I didn't have a car. I think we went by train that last time, but I'm not sure if it was the last time or not. And then we said, we have to go on. We can't just leave this. We have to start working actively for women's rights. And the next thing that happened a few weeks later, only perhaps only two or three weeks later, uh, somebody rang me up in the evening. This was in May '68, and the the woman who called me must have lived not far from me at all. I lived in Hesseby, and she I remember she lived in Hesseby. I can't remember exactly where, but I could walk there. She was called Mona Malmström, and she said, please come to my, to my place because we're just talking about starting a group, a women's group. So I went there at once, and then we found we were eight. There were eight of us, and what do we call ourselves? So we said, Group Otta. And so the group, Group Otta, or Group Eight, was formed. <laughs> They were fueled with passion and inspiration from the seminars in Uppsala, and they knew exactly what they wanted. 
so we said, well, what should, we we want to be do actions. We don't we we don't just want to talk. It doesn't have to be like this. Women don't have to play this role. But it didn't look like they were just going to be eight for long. Word had started to spread, and more and more women wanted to join them. People were ringing us all the time and writing to us all the time, saying, well, I want to join. Who, what, how, what do I do? And we said, it was a bit, you know, having to say you can't join yet, but wait, just wait. I didn't like saying that to, to women. We were eight, so to speak, who started something which was demanded at the time. One of the earliest to join, after the original eight, was the director, Susan Austin. My name is uh, Susan Austin. I'm a director. Susan and a bunch of others who joined Birgitta in the original eight were also unhappy with how women were represented and treated at the end of the 60s. The view upon women was a lot about cooking coffee, <laughs> to do the coffee. So you are an exception. You get coffee. <laughs> I feel uh, terrible now. No, no, no. In my home you're my guest. But the, <clears throat> the, the thing that we were supposed to cook coffee and not participate and not have any leading roles was very obvious even in the left. And uh, so this was just bullshit what we were taught, that we had all the rights. Uh, It was obvious we had not. So Group 8 were no longer just 8, but it was still a small, close-knit and intense group. We met very often. This woman called Åsa Bexell, she had a little apartment in Stockholm, where she didn't, she wasn't living there. So we met there. It was in Vasastan, so it was very, very practical. When when she couldn't keep this anymore, we rented an apartment in Gamla Stan, in one of the houses they were going to. Uh, it, I'm very happy they didn't demolish everything, which was one of their plans. Gamla Stan was old and old-fashioned, <laughs> and of course it was very old. So what they did was a good idea. They kept the 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 exteriors and renovated the interiors but while they were doing that poor groups musicians and political groups and other groups could rent cheaply apartments there so we had one from 19 about 1970 we were there for two or three years anyway and i remember that because it was terribly cold it was a very cold winter like this one but worse i think and there was no heating because they had stopped all that. The toilets were in, uh, you know, outside, and outside, very old, you know, kind of toilets people had hundred years ago. And I was always, it was so cold, I didn't want to go there. And also, there was something I was quite afraid of: the rats were about this size. They were always, so you had to shout and stamp your foot to scare, to scare away the rats. And then we we said, what can we do? Uh, we can do different actions, but we must also learn more about uh, women's history and the history of socialism. So we started studying. So we all had to read books, Marx, Engels, uh, and of course Mary Wollstonecraft and uh, Elin Wegener. The group trained themselves. They were not like some other women's movements around the world who used violence. They used books for their weapons. They wanted to be ready to win with their intellect. And then the day came when they would officially, for once and for all, let Stockholm 
and the rest of the world know that they were a voice to be reckoned with. Susan remembers the spring they went public. I always behind very much uh, the group eight to go out, to look for an audience, so to speak, to have a public appearance in Stadsmuseet. Since I was a theatre person, I wanted to talk and dialogue and have the discussion more practically. So I thought all our theories and all our knowings, we had to test it. So we uh, rented or for free uh, and, and made a public announcement. Let's, uh, we're starting this woman movement, Group A, and 150 women came. This was a shock to us. And we had no idea so many would come. We were shocked. <laughs> well, what do we do now? What they did was to fight for a number of causes. First up was the right for free abortion. Here is Anika Engstrom, now Anika Kullberg. I think I am the 12th or 13th member. I was then pregnant <laughs> and uh, happily pregnant and very proud. Uh, we arranged a big meeting in OBF, uh, which was a really scary experience because the audience consisted of mostly men in black priests, doctors, psychiatrists, authority people, and this Christian Democratic Party, of course. And they were so aggressive. And the doctors said, as a young woman, you can't decide by yourself for an abortion. That's impossible. You are not grown up enough to do that. And that was the, the common opinion. And so we had a very hard fight about this. People who opposed to free abortion, they thought this was very weird. How could a young pregnant woman demonstrate for free abortion? That was insane. Next up was childcare. Lots of things quick changed quickly. For instance, childcare in Stockholm, we had it agreed to meet the person in Socialborgarådet who was responsible for this. It was a man, Every, everybody at the time was a man. We were supposed to come to his room at Stadshuset. So, so we all, everybody who had, a small, had small children brought them with, with them. <laughs> but I remember when we just let these babies loose and they, they had, took the, everything they could, all the papers from his desk. <laughs> He and his collaborators were, you know, they were dumb, struck dumb. They were so shocked. <laughs> and I said, oh, please, please take them away. <laughs> the women with the baby said, but we're, we can't, we couldn't come here without our babies because there is no daycare for children. There was also equal pay and women's rights in the workplace. Women needed jobs and jobs needed women. <laughs> Anika remembers when this issue seemed to hit a little too close to home. I expected my baby in March 1970, before Christmas 1969. I got a letter from the foundation board, mostly very reactionary men, and he said, now you, you will be a mother, you have such an important task to fulfill, and that, that's why we have decided to let you go. They sacked me. 
which was illegal. But then the women in group eight, they all supported me and helped me to come in contact with the, with the lawyer and, and I started to fight against the board and they, of course, they had to withdraw. It was a constant discussion, where are the workers? and where are the women of the workers. And, and, and we had a big ideological fight about housewives, no housewives. It was jobs and good kindergartens and, and free abortion. There was music too. Records were made, songs for women, written by women, sung by women. Susan was at the heart of this, and there was one song in particular that seemed to resonate with so many young women out there. In English, you translate the title to, We Have to Raise Our Voice. I was working in the youth ungdomsgårdar, uh, youth centers, where this song appeared. Oh, we must höjer It was actually meant for those working class girls who didn't say a word when a boy was in the room. That song <laughs> became uh, some sort of mark for the whole thing. Uh, we have to raise our voices. Of course. As a theatre person, I also knew what it meant practically. But you have to be aware, at that time, there was a lot of uh, liberative voice. It was also along of sing-song writers uh, doing this voice work. And uh, so it was also practically, you have to raise your voice, you had to find your voice. It was mentally, metaphorically, and it was practically. The group had found their voice, and soon they found their very own day. Somebody read about the 8th of March and Clara Setkin started that in 1910 and we said, but why don't we celebrate the 8th of March in Sweden? We, as far as we knew, it was celebrated in the Soviet Union. It was sort of Mother's Day and all the, me the men bought perhaps three tulips or something and said to their wives, here you are because you're so good at working and looking after our children and everything else, which they did, you know, the women did everything. I, I, went, I visited the Soviet Union twice and they said it was so, there, there's no, no inequality, nothing, but it was terrible, terrible society in, in every way, and of course. <laughs> they didn't fool anyone. <laughs> Uh, but we said, why don't we celebrate? It's the Women's Day, National Women's Day. It should be. I think they were trying to celebrate it in, in some African, African states which had now become free states, free from colonialism. So we said, we should celebrate this in Sweden. And I remember the 8th of March, I think it was 71, and we had these, we went in a picket line in Segel Story, and we had big... Uh, posters on us, uh, um, front and back, I think, which said, today is International Women's Day. Do you know today is International Women's Day? But of course, it was never plain sailing. At the same time as the group were gaining more and more support, they were attracting enemies. 
when we were campaigning for free abortion, there was at the time a movement, a sort of uh, rightist Christian movement. They were extremely reactionary. And uh, they had meetings in Sagelstorg talking about the horrible threat of free abortion. And what one meeting they had uh, loudspeakers saying the names of children, you know, Britta, Lasse, Eva, Kalle. And then there was a voice saying, all these children, they, they weren't born because they were murdered in their mother's wombs, otherwise you would have had these children around. And we, this was so horrible. And at one of these meetings, we said, we will have free abort. <laughs> we, we were very few, you know, ten perhaps. We want free abortion. We want free abortion. We want free abortion. And then one woman came up to me and she... So I, I, I wanted to discuss with her and she just spit in my face. They were trying to show us that they despised us. And we were also attacked and discussed, and it was a rather tumultuous years. Mm. You can imagine we tried to, to, to create something new. I, I have been personally very attacked and persecuted by letters, and, uh, and then this internet situation where you can so easily get attacked. I think it was the same, but we didn't get it up our face immediately. But of course, when we were out in the streets, you could see people spitting and and cursing, of course, and uh, we could get... The hate, I think, is nothing new. It's something we sort of knew all the time. I wondered if during all those years of demonstrating out in the cold Swedish weather, when their voices were muffled or ignored, when they were spat on by some and looked at as if they were crazy by others, did they ever think of turning to violence? Birgitta gives this anecdote, which I think does a lovely job of summing up the level of their criminality. The most violent thing we did, I think, which I took part in, was the um, tobacco and newspaper shops. And they had their window, their shop windows full of naked women. Uh, you don't see that in this way, that way today. So we made posters, women should not be consumed, <laughs> and we pasted them. We had huge rolls of posters, and we didn't have ordinary glue, but we had a kind of glue which actually destroyed the window, destroyed the glass. That's one, I think, my only illegal action. Uh, I had a big pot of this glue, uh, and I had the rolls of posters under one arm, and a big, you know, brush. I remember the, the evening I I was part of this. The police came, but they they all ran. They <laughs> took our posters and our glue and ran and tried to into little streets and get into houses. And I was so afraid because I couldn't afford to lose. I wouldn't have been able to keep my job if I had been persecuted and judged for uh, destroying. Uh, things like that, and I had I was a lone pa- a, a single parent, and <laughs> so I, I remember being really scared. As the group grew, more and more ideologies from within were starting to cause conflict, and for some, the time had come to move on. Like in all groups, there were power 
power splits. There were so many discussions and so many uh, conflicts and that made me a bit tired. Time by time I found it a bit frustrating and there was a lot of dogmatism and between left leftists and radical feminists and it was a lack of structure that didn't um, it didn't address me. We could also see during the years that uh, there were some strategies from other left groups to take over the group of course it's always a political struggle so but the idea to to have a discussion free and to train people who are not used to think allow and to have voice political voice that was very conscious we had to have some structures and some people thought i for instance i was too dominant i was fighting that back and said what's wrong with that What's wrong to have a lot of ideas? We have to we have to have a lot more ideas, and we have to discuss much more. I didn't leave exactly. I didn't, uh, you know, say I won't be a member anymore. But uh, I didn't. After seventy three, seventy four, it must have been. I felt I can't be active anymore because of this. The the really left, left, left. The, all the groups uh, which were revolutionary, the revolutionary left movement. And the women who belonged to that who said, you are, and they came to our, our we, we had these meetings where every woman could join if she wanted to. And they said, you're not real socialists, you, you shouldn't call yourself socialists, and all that. And said, we, you, you, you're on the wrong way, it's not the way to start a revolution. I, I couldn't stand it anymore. And one of the reasons I told you perhaps is I, I can't stand tobacco smoke. And everybody at the time, everybody smoked. Susan is still directing plays and films. She's a big name in Sweden, and I wondered how much she feels that Group 8 has influenced her life and her career. What, for example, was most important for her from that time? To me it was important to write new plays with uh, parts for women and to question the whole uh, gestalt of women on stage. So I was very active when it comes to seminars, workshops, to, to create new women figures on stage and in film. And I, I, I became also very active uh, teaching uh, producers, actors, directors. So I, I, I use my feminist um, conviction, I still do, in, in my teaching. You can still feel the impact of Group 8 today. In many ways, they helped shape the Sweden I moved to a year ago. Equal pay for equal work, daycare for children, free abortion, and the deconstruction of gender roles. Saga is me, Tom Henley. The theme tune is done by the sweaty Anton Beckman. Thanks to Begitta, Susan, and Anika for taking time to talk to me about Group 8's history. Join me next time for more Saga.